Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, HCI Research Associate Dr. Leandra Hernandez and her colleagues continue their weekly COVID-19 convo via Facebook Live to discuss all things COVID-19 related. What's been up with you guys in quarantine this week? I feel like I'm starting to run out of things to say. Well, Florida is determined to open up, um, but most of the people I know are mostly hunkered down. Lots of chatter on the on Facebook of you know people who are refusing to wear masks in public, and this is communism. It's <laughs> like if it were communism, they'd give us masks. <laughs> that would be bad. <laughs> Yeah, I saw a tweet. Um, this was like at the very beginning of our quarantine. Somebody from Wuhan posted on Twitter, like, I'm sitting in my apartment eating fish and vegetables that my government gave me. Tell me how my rights are infringed on right now. Like, Right. right. I mean, I do not idealize the Chinese government in any way. Um, but uh, yeah, they, and just the the responses like this is an abrogation of freedom it's like you know you can't go outside without pants <laughs> where's the protest for that you know so yeah but it's interesting because uh just today i read an article that made me think of your question from a few weeks ago about prejudice um you were raising the issue that you might have to have a card that said you'd already had the virus and you know so you'd had antibodies and we talked kind of talked about that but in fact the military announced today first that they wouldn't take any recruits who had ever tested positive for covid and then two hours later they backed off that and they said well we'll take them if they tested positive but not if they've ever been hospitalized well, I mean, and the, the cat is still out of the bag in terms of like secondary diagnoses and tertiary diagnoses, right? So I, I think the fact that that was issued was a little premature, particularly when we don't really know what the relationship is, right? Kari, I it, I still think it's not working. From a, Do you know why? Because now this new one is not public and I just <laughs> changed it. Sorry. Oh, wait. I, I'm seeing comments from Alexis. Alexis Paperman, you just popped up on my feed as live, but it does appear to be a different link. Yes, that's true, Alexis. We have a new link because I thought the old link wasn't working, okay. but it was. And now yeah. I don't think we can use that link anymore. Okay, but but does that mean, Alexis, are you seeing us? I don't know. 
I think it's on a new live. In fact, we might get more viewers because it's just popping up randomly on people's page now <laughs> as a spontaneous and exciting okay. live. So we are we are live now on this feed. Okay. So anyway, we were talking about um, initially that maybe having had the virus, you know, would confer more pre more privilege, right? Because you know people are issuing in other countries those little kind of passports that say you know, I've had it, I have antibodies. Whereas here we have the military saying initially that they wouldn't take anyone who'd ever tested positive and then saying, well, we'll take you if you tested positive, but not if you were ever hospitalized. And I assume that that, um, thanks Alexis. <laughs> I assume that that um, would have to be uh, because they don't want to incur liability not liability, but um, the medical expenses yeah. for um, people who have, as you say, uh, secondary and tertiary sequelae. But as you say, it's really early to say that. I mean, it's I guess it's the recruiting season. People graduate and then they go and they they sign up. But I have to say, if this thing is going to spread as widely as they think it is, they're really eliminating a big swath of possible recruits. I mean, and and it's a military that already struggles. You have to recruit. So I'm not sure how that's a great idea. Yeah. And this is, yeah, this is, and this is me just spitballing kind of stream of consciousness about it. You know, because my, my husband was in the Navy for 10 years and is now in civilian life. And I wonder what, if any, is the relationship between COVID and the military releasing that statement and also um, kind of like, the idea of whether or not there are too many service members in the military, particularly when we think about the number of active duty, the number that are in like recruit schools and then um, like bases and the actual capability for different bases to house all of these different individuals. Um, and, I, and I just saw you post that link right before we started. And I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be the next topic for the next few weeks. <laughs> um, because I think that's, that's a really strong message for the military and the government to say, hey, because of COVID, if there was ever any sort of concern, we're not going to let you into the military, right? That's a big deal. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's a very big deal. And, you know, especially when a lot of the messaging is still um, that, you know, A, we can we have to take it on the chin, as, as Boris uh, Johnson said in a different context. Um, but also that you know well maybe it's not that big a deal et cetera et cetera yeah. um it's clearly somebody thinks it's a pretty big deal yeah exactly i'm trying to find i think i finally found it i don't know how good it will show up but you were talking about these like cards um that show immunity i'm going to yeah. try to share screen which i've never done mm -hmm. before Ooh. Um, Exciting new new skills. Yeah, I don't know if it'll work. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have to add an extension. Okay, be live. Okay, cool. So now let me share screen. Let me do it. Okay. Can you see it? Not yet. Oh, oh, I can put it up on the screen. Oh, oh, cool. that's pretty cool. Oh, it's such a bad picture. Yeah, I can't really tell what that is, but it's um Charles Dickens's life insurance policy. 
<laughs> and it states on there that he's had smallpox, but mm. the picture is so bad you can't even tell. Take my word for it. It's um, him promising that he's had the smallpox and so mm -hmm. that his life is worth ensuring. Well, I mean, this is a kind of, you know, um, privilege versus anti-privilege that we've always had, right? I mean, you go to get insurance and they ask you if you've had a pre-existing condition. And of course that was, mm -hmm. you know, been a lot of argument about that around Obamacare, affordable care, what, what have you. But, um, you know, that has always been um, part of part of that equation. I mean, we're, we were talking the other day about um, countries that are allowing people to move more freely because they've already had COVID, for example. Um, but this is related, right? Um, much yeah I, I mean i saw something like a month ago about the the problematics of immunoprivilege assignments mm -hmm. and i think at the time i didn't i don't know i just glanced at it and didn't really see the import because i personally hadn't gotten deep enough into this to realize how people might misuse that mm -hmm. um and now i'm like you can't that's such a slippery slope very, very, and and we know so little. So I mean, here the military is just like we're going to protect ourselves from having this, you know, again this this sort of liability to care for these people who may have issues. But um, but uh, but we really have no idea what the sequelae might be. Um, Rachel Wilson asks, I'm also wondering how privatization affects the valuation put on health versus non-health. Oh, guys, that's one of my students. I'm so oh. proud of that question. Hey, <laughs> <Boy>, Rachel. <laughs> I was going to say, I think I have several students watching now. And I was wondering, since it's kind of, it's our last class of the semester, oh, if I could just open it up for them to ask you guys questions. Um, mm -hmm. I ended up making them just read my book because we were going to read The Hot Zone and a bunch of really scary pandemic dystopian things. And that's <laughs> well, inappropriate. One, it's not fun. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking they would probably love to hear a voice other than mine or also be like, hey, guys, when Dr. Nixon says this wacky thing, don't you think she's wrong? <laughs> okay to ask. I am wrong about many things. Well, Leanne, do you want to answer, answer Rachel's question? Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, where do we even start? Right. I, and Kari, I think your point earlier about slippery slope was spot on. Like I've been thinking about this a lot with um, kind of the military context that Pam mm -hmm. brought up. And I think when it comes down to like what the definition is, how the insurance companies see it, and then how that plays out the slippery slope is terrifying because it's like what pam said we just don't know what it looks like right mm -hmm. like in the military context for example if they're saying that we're not going to allow any service member who may have had covid at some point in the future and again the distinction between being ho hospitalized or not is a whole other story um i also wonder what that means and what that looks like for service members who already currently have it now particularly those who are struggling with it while on deployed right and mm -hmm. a few weeks ago we talked about uh the commanding officer who was let go from the ship and then all of the petitions that mm -hmm. were noted to bring him back 
And I think when one of the biggest forces, like one of the biggest institutional forces in our country comes out and says that and then immediately retracts, um, I think from a media perspective, there's a lot to deconstruct about the messaging and who came up with this idea and who signed off on that to say that it was okay to disseminate that to the larger public. But then um, I'm also hesitant of and concerned about what this is going to look like down the line. And Rachel, I'm sorry, I don't know if I answered your question, but I was kind of thinking about all of these things when Pam was talking earlier. <laughs> Right. I mean, you know, just to, to riff on it in a different direction, um, I have never really, I mean, the, the, the usual argument, and I'm not talking about what the arguments economists make, but ordinary people make for having privatized insurance is, oh, it's more uh, efficient, you know, because there's competition, et cetera, et cetera. But oh, for profit, that means that they have to make a profit which means that they have to pay less out for your health care than you pay in or you and your employers pay in. And that really, um, you know, it encourages a certain amount of under treatment um, and it creates a context in which doctors have to, you know, code things in a certain way, which encourages more treatment for some things than for others. You know, whereas, you know, and the larger the company that you belong to or the, you know, the group that you belong to, the um, the less expensive for them, right? Because you, first of all, amortize that risk over people who are not as sick. Um, and so if those, sick, if those people who are not sick are paying in, even if you have to pay out a lot for the few people who are sick, you still have enough money. But of course, you know, in a system that makes it optional, people who are not sick tend not to buy these things because why would you? It's expensive and usually the people who are not sick are young and you've got bills and so why are you gonna pay for something you're not sure you're gonna use? So it really makes sense to have a large payer or set of large payers um, who can say, well, we estimate that there is gonna, you know, we're gonna need this much of this cancer drug over the next 12 months and so we're going to buy this much and you have that standing order and so we can get it at a discount because it's a bulk order as opposed to um having you know smaller for-profit organizations trying to do this uh which is why drugs are so much cheaper in canada than they are in the united states for example um it also makes sense to make everybody pay in just the way everybody in our country pays into Medicare with the expectation and the hope that we will someday get something back out of it, that we will live long enough to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there are certain, Adam Smith in the 18th century was one of the first theorists of capitalism, um, you know, was a big believer in the free market, but he also said that there were some things, some social goods that would not pay private companies to develop. And, you know, some of them were big projects like roads and bridges that were just too much money for private companies. Some of the, those things were universal education, which he believed in. Um, and, you know, basically this seems to me to be one of those goods that's valuable enough to a nation that there is a, there is a good reason to have public investment in it. So that's my take. Agreed. <laughs> Um, I think there are also certain businesses that, you know, it doesn't make sense to me, for example, to have for-profit prisons because you're basically 
suggesting that it's a good idea for someone to make a profit by putting people in a cage. And we don't wanna incentivize people to put more people in cages. So that would be perhaps another example of something that really I think is does not do well with private competition and stockholders making profits off of it. Yeah, I mean, particularly in the um, prison context, when we think about the the racial, ethnic, and gender dynamics that are at play there too, I think yeah. it's particularly concerning. Absolutely, and and to be clear again, I am not an economist, <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, and this is not the official opinion of the university at which I work. <laughs> um, do any, I see Alexis on here. There's two Alexis's actually right now. Um, does anybody else have questions? We read some, some of the stuff we read for Thursday was pretty tricky, but there might be other questions you have not related to the reading, just related to talking to anybody but me. <laughs> We'll see if anybody puts one up. Um, yeah, like states starting to open up. I was at the post office the other day and you know, Washington is not opening up. Yeah. And there was this guy in front of me that was just complaining about how there are no cases in Washington. And so obviously it's stupid to not open up. And I'm just like, I just, whoa. Because something works. That means we want to stop doing it. <laughs> no, I know. I just was so frustrated even listening. I had thought of that after we talked last time when you were saying, you know, is there going to be a second wave? And I'm like, oh, we're still in the first wave. And then I thought, oh, right, you're on the West Coast where you really did tamp down the first wave. We're in Florida where we're still pretty much on the upslope. So you're in a different position vis-a-vis -vis the first wave than, than you are in the West. And I didn't think of that at the time. But um, yeah, we, um, we did not achieve that kind of uh, downslope at all. And yet we have opened back up, um, are opening back up. And um, the result is we're counting some of the highest death tolls we've seen in the last couple of days. We opened on Monday. Yeah. I mean, and those are not death tolls from opening on Monday, obviously. Those are right. from, you know, in the pipeline. But so still, I think in a month we're going to see another sharp spike. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I've been tracking this very closely with both the state of Utah and Texas because both opened up, like, you know, to certain percentages and certain capabilities. And I was talking to one of my family members about how the restaurant was doing uh, on Cinco de Mayo. And my family member was like, it was an absolute catastrophe. The restaurant was slammed. People weren't honoring any sorts of social distancing rules in spite of the fact that several of the employees were trying to keep some sort of structure there. And um, you know, you've got that happening in Texas with the COVID cases rising. But again, Pam, like you said, right, this is all in the pipeline. It's not like this is just directly a result of the state opening. Um, and then in Utah, I've been thinking about it in an outdoor context because last night I had a conference call with um, several individuals associated with different climbing organizations in the West. So some in Colorado, some in Utah um, and some in the Midwest. And we were essentially talking about framing messages. Right. So how do we construct these messages and how do we disseminate them? Like, 
Do we focus on maintaining the social distance behaviors for those who are already doing it? Do we try and lay down the hammer, so to speak, and say, don't go outside at all? Mm -hmm. And um, one of the organizations said that they essentially are, were treating their outdoor social distancing messaging as if it was a like safe sex campaign, for example, right? So the idea that individuals are going to go outside mm -hmm. anyway, so here's what to do when you're out there. And I spent a lot of time thinking about that last night. Like one, the idea of linking pandemic social distancing to a campaign for safe sex or some other sort of behavior because abstinence only in that context doesn't work, right? But then um, I thought about, you know, like equipping individuals with rules or best practices that they can use when they're outside, whether it's at the restaurant or at a barbecue or at a, mm -hmm. a climbing crag, and then just hoping that at the end of the day, they're going to follow that, right? But I mean, with some gyms opening up and some organizations opening up the scary thing is we just don't know right yeah, yeah. well we were talking the other day about you know how do you get people who um now that everything is so politicized how do you get people to kind of buy into this and we talked mm -hmm. about you know um having masks that would be sort of you know expressive of a certain kind of political persuasion where people could you know could feel that they're somehow still identifying with their group even while they're practicing yeah, like the masculinized um, mask right <laughs> right right and then and then we we found that article where in in 1918, apparently it was a problem because people were thinking, men were thinking that it was a little bit femme to wear masks. And so they, you know, they had a, an advertising campaign like, you know, manly masks. <laughs> so, you know, so uh, I think, you know, I, I think it'll be interesting to see as more people who do identify um, with that kind of politics and who are often right now in maybe rural areas or smaller towns where um, they haven't seen COVID, they haven't seen yeah. anyone they know have it. And so a lot of them, you know, and a lot of them believe everything is fake news. So they think all the numbers are made up. It's like, you know, it's like, you know, you can go to New York and find out <laughs> it's not on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As people start to see maybe some of their friends and relatives, unfortunately, um, begin to get ill, I think there may be a little bit more of a shift yeah. toward taking um, masks seriously. And then we may see more, you know, freedom masks or something. Um, yeah, and it's, it's sad that it has to get to that point for the message to stick, right? Mm -hmm. That someone won't necessarily buy into the messaging or the social distancing until it happens to them or someone they mm -hmm. know particularly when, you know, you think about how these measures, recommendations, mandates, however we want to frame them, right? Mm -hmm. They're in place to prevent that from happening in the first place. Right. And I, I do think that a lot, because social mobility and income are tied to actual mobility and to knowing a broader circle of um, people, very often the people who are, um, let's say in, in working class jobs in smaller towns, don't know a lot of people, mm -hmm. you know, in the next big city. Um, now that's not always true, of course. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but I, you know, I have to think that that's something of what's happening when I see these people who say, this is all a hoax, you know, you don't know anyone who's actually got this. And, you know, <laughs> it's like, actually, 
we do. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Kari, Alexis asked a really great question about, um, you know, the virus having an end, normality or whatever life mm -hmm. as normal looks like. Um, what do y'all think about that in terms of the virus not really ever going away? I mean, I do think it's safe to say that the impacts of this are um, going to be long term, right? Alexis, what reading are you thinking of? Are you thinking of one of the chapters from Endemic? I want to let Pamela and Leandra answer this, but I also would like to try to find maybe what quote you're thinking of so I could highlight that. But Leah, you could you go ahead and answer it outside the context of chapter seven? That's what I thought. You keep doing what you're doing. I'm going to find that quote. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we we hope that from a public health perspective, there will be some sort of an end, right? Some sort of temporality to this virus, particularly when we think about um, other pandemics we've seen, advances in technology, things of that nature. But I've been thinking a lot about what normal life means or, or what that looks like, both pre and post pandemic. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been seeing a lot of discourses play out on Facebook and in other spaces talking about how um, some individuals maybe think that the pandemic is a good thing because it makes individuals slow down and it makes us see kind of the, the social mobilization angle that comes from this, right? Where mm -hmm. we band together for the common good and things of that nature. Um, but I mean, then I think why did it take or necessitate a pandemic mm -hmm. for that to happen? Um, and then I also think about, you know, the long-term economic and agricultural and public health impacts that this is going to have as well. Um, so when we think about returning to normal life, I honestly don't know what that's going to look like after a pandemic, right? But I would say that, um, that although it's true, this is probably going to roll out for a long time, there were, you know, two good reasons to 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 do the things that we did. The first one was to relieve pressure on the healthcare system, clear those ICU beds, so that if we reopen, there will be beds for the people who need them. But the other thing is, we're learning about this virus. We're learning so much in real time, and right now it's very confusing. There's a lot of noise because there's a lot of <laughs> going on, right? But every month we learn more about how the virus works and we learn more about what medications and best practices mm -hmm. are to combat it what's the best way to treat patients in the icu i mean we've moved from putting everybody on a ventilator if we have ventilators to keeping people off ventilators if we possibly can and just pushing oxygen you know that's saved lives it's it's kept people from blowing out their lungs um, so the longer we keep this going, the more probability there is that this will become a more manageable epidemic, that when people are diagnosed, that there will be a set of strategies other than go home, try to keep your fever down and good luck, Yeah, which is pretty much what we had at the beginning. And the other thing is we're edging closer to a vaccine. There are a number of promising vaccines in the works. Even if none of them turn out, we will learn from them. We will get closer. This is another thing about privatized healthcare. We started working on a vaccine. We scientists were working on a vaccine for SARS and you know got pretty far along that road. And then SARS wasn't that contagious. And then it didn't pay any private companies 
to pursue that research. And so the research basically died on the vine. If nations had spent more, um, you know, as again, as a public good uh, to continue that research, we would probably have been pretty close to a vaccine for COVID, which is SARS adjacent. So now that people are back on that road, we could be looking at a vaccine. I mean, Oxford is saying maybe September, that sounds really early to everybody, but you know, if there's a vaccine in a year and we've been careful and we've been social distancing for a year, I know that sounds like a really long time, but it's dead is forever. <laughs> so, you know, you gotta, you gotta put it in perspective. <laughs> Um, okay, I found the quote, and actually, um, Alexis, you're asking a really, really insightful question, and I want to make sure we cover this. So this is from chapter seven of Lorenzo and I's book, Endemic, where we talk about the way that disease discourse is just embedded in our society. Um, and so what she's asking is actually from a part of a chapter that talks about when a disease that was once epidemic becomes endemic. Mm -hmm. And as society builds a new normal, and here's the quote she's talking about from Robert Giroux, mm -hmm. the trauma doesn't end when the survivors of the decimating event come together, coalesce and initiate the process of founding a new collective. Both actors and geographies have memories. Mm. And what she said, if I hope you won't mind if I paraphrase your note, Alexis, because it was really astute. She said, creating space in our community is helping, but is it really just delaying in a way what is inevitable that this will become our new reality and that we will never forget this collective trauma and we'll always think about things differently so that this what we're doing now, this social distancing has a pragmatic, immediate utilitarian purpose, but existentially, is it really doing much? And I just love that sentiment. I want to hear what y'all think about it. That's really, it's really interesting. And I think, um, I think on one level, yes, we will form new structures around uh, the memory of this epidemic, around the new reality of COVID, whatever it is, if it becomes a kind of seasonal thing that we all have to worry about, if there are outbreaks here and there that we have to shut down selectively different communities, go back to social distancing. I think all of that is true. Um, and, you know, and hopefully we will do it in as positive a manner as possible. Although there's also going to be economic devastation from that. Yeah. And that's going to redraw our, you know, like a lot of businesses and things that we took for granted are just, they're not going to make it back. And other things will <laughs> move in to replace them or to supplement them. And then that will become a new normal. But the flip side is what we're doing does have a function. Um, because, you know, again, if, you know, you're not going to change the fact of having the pandemic, but if you save 20% or 30% of the people who would have died, it's still much less traumatic for them <laughs> and yeah. their families, right? So that does change the collective trauma, like the collective trauma around losing, you know, a hundred thousand people is enormous. The collective trauma around losing 400,000 people who are parents, that's orphans, right? Yeah. That's, you know, breadwinners, that's, you know, this whole, the, the people who make our society function, that is an order of magnitude different. And that trauma actually looks different. 
Yeah. So I think there is there is a point to what we're doing. It's not going to make it all go away, right? We are going to see a traumatic restructuring and a new order after this, but it will be different than it would have been if we just let this thing roll over everybody. Oh yeah, absolutely. I really love that yeah. formulation of it. Oh yeah, and Kari, you know, I always think about things in a, a violence context. <laughs> I've been, you know, the the idea of of macro and micro level traumas is something I've been thinking about a lot too. Kind of in terms of the collective trauma that you know, Alexis, you pointed to, and Pam, you pointed to as well. Something that is particularly troubling for me, particularly when we think of how it's going to play out long term, is like the micro level violence trauma that individuals are facing as a result of the social isolation, mm -hmm. right? And so um, one of my colleagues and I are working on a piece right now that's looking at the spikes in domestic violence and assault and things of that nature. And then I've also been thinking about it from just a general mental health context um, mm -hmm. in conversations with my students um, and in conversations with my colleagues about how like when we think that we've at a micro level individually reach kind of this equilibrium with we're taking our medications and we've got our habits down and everything's okay. Like the COVID came in and wrecked everything. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, like I, Pam, I really appreciated what you said about like the pros of all of this. And I'm also interested to see um, hopefully optimistically what it's going to look like down the line at the micro level too. Cause I, mm -hmm. I know just anecdotally, right. From several individuals I've talked to, um, you know, we've been discussing how mental health issues are just spiraling to different proportions because of the distancing and, and lots, and even problems getting access to medication as well that we need. So I think just to bring it all back together, the point about, um, kind of the trauma, like I think about it personally in like a, a racial, ethnic, ancestral sort of trauma, right? When we think about how trauma and pain, some scholars argue, like rewrites itself into our lineage. Um, and I think you could also make the argument for that here from like a, a mental health or a violence perspective too, when we think about what pandemics do and how they operate in that context. Yeah. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.